DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone, and we're going to spend a few minutes talking recruiting now with Brandon Huffman, 24-7 Sports. He's the National Recruiting Coordinator. Brandon, good morning. How you guys doing? Doing well. I am curious, before we get into, the, into any of the specifics, uh, in Utah we had high school football. We know in other states that hasn't happened. Either it will happen in the spring or possibly in some states it won't happen at all. How much has that messed up recruiting this year, aside from the fact that you know there's less on-campus visits and coaches aren't going out to see recruits? I mean, that's a whole other thing, but just the fact that a lot of states didn't even play in the fall. Yeah, I think Utah is obviously the, the focus of jealousy of just about every state out west. You know, not just that they play, but they completed a 14 game season. And you look at a guy like Jackson Dart, who directly benefited from having a season and how his recruitment took off as a result of that. That's what changed. There's a lot of guys in California and Oregon and, and Washington and Nevada who anticipated a similar type of senior season you know, explosion that would have seen their recruitment take off. And, you know, there's still questions if they'll even play and when they'll play. And it could be well after signing day. I mean, if you think about Washington, Oregon, and Nevada, they may not start playing until March at this point, and signing day will have been a month before. So it definitely helped in the case of players in Utah, but there's a lot of guys out west that have seen their recruitment really just peter out as a result of their not being in football this fall. Uh, you brought up Dart. He is the big high-profile kid. I was told that it's between the two Pac-12 L.A. schools. What do you know? That's what a lot of the buzz has been. Between USC and UCLA, a lot of uh, buzz building for USC, uh, especially with USC. They were planning to bring in two quarterbacks in this class when they lost their quarterback a year ago. Bryce Young to Alabama got a commitment from Jake Garcia, then got a commitment from Miller Moss, but they offered Dart a few weeks ago. And Garcia ultimately decommitted, and they've gone all in on Dart. There obviously is a, a returning starter next year at USC, Keaton Slovis, who theoretically could be there for another couple of years. Uh, but Dart is really filling the Trojans from all reports, and it, it sounds like USC is in a good position to get him. UCLA is making a push as well, uh, but it really sounds like USC is going to be who he ultimately chooses this week. We'll see. I know BYU and Arizona State are also trying to make a push for him as well, but things are looking rather well for USC at this point with Dart. So I'm curious about how some of these high-level quarterbacks uh, judge things. Uh, you know, it seems like the risk in going to USC is that coaching staff could be fired any year. And at the same time, if they have the kind of big season that preserves Clay Helton's job, it's also the kind of season that gets the OC a job. So that, with the fact that you'd be one of two or three quarterbacks going into a class, seems like a negative. I know there are coaches who have this run-first reputation, um, and that probably Utah, UCLA in the Pac-12, just or ASU, you know, run first, play great defense. Uh, but even those quarterbacks get to throw the the ball twenty five times a game, so you got a chance to make your mark and show what you can do. And you might have the play action available to you because you're such a good running team and hit on big plays. How, how do kids weigh all that? Or honestly, do they just look at Oregon uniforms sometimes like, hey, I want to play, I want to wear those cool jerseys? I mean, how does this work for these high level quarterbacks? I would say that quarterbacks probably are the most judicious and probably the most deliberate in their approach. I also, you know, it, it's 
interesting to say that given that quarterbacks probably commit earlier than any other position, but a lot of it's because they were recruited earlier. And so they've had a lot more time to go and get a feel for the school, get a feel for the OC, get a feel for the quarterback's coach, get a feel for the head coach and the offense, watch and see how players have been developed. And, you know, you, you look at situations where, take last year when DJ Uyangalele, the number one quarterback in the country for the majority of the year, committed to Clemson, you know, three months, four months after Trevor Lawrence had led them to a national championship as a true freshman. So by math, DJ knew by the time he got to Clemson, he would be backing up, you know, arguably the best quarterback in college football and knew he had a year to learn from Trevor Lawrence. Obviously, he had opportunities to start during the season, but he went there knowing I'm going to have the opportunity to learn from Trevor Lawrence and I'm okay waiting until 2021 to be the starter. On the flip side, Bryce Young, quarterback who was committed to USC out of modern day, commits to Alabama when it becomes really obvious Tua Tonga-Vailoa was going to be leading for the NFL. Matt Jones happens. He ends up playing later in the year when Tua gets hurt, takes that starting job. But Bryce Young goes there thinking, I'm going to have the opportunity to be the starter as a true freshman at Alabama. Clearly Nick Saban went that route at times with Jalen Hurts and Tua. So, they factor in, maybe it's better for me to sit. Some will factor in, maybe I have an opportunity to play right away. And we obviously see the transfer portal becoming such an effective tool for quarterbacks. And, you know, in years past, people say, well, they're afraid to compete. That's why they're transferring. No, the reason they're transferring is because they want to compete, but there's only one quarterback that's going to get on the field. They want to transfer somewhere so they can play as soon as possible. So I think that's the other thing quarterbacks have in the back of their head is if you go and you, you, know, you miss out on an opportunity – the quarterback position is such a premium position, you're still likely going to have a pretty good opportunity if you put your name in the portal and the school is desperate for improved quarterback play. So I heard a theory, and I want your reaction, that this uh, transfer portal, particularly with the one-time transfer going forward, it's really going to potentially benefit the teams that don't need it, you know, the Alabamas, the Clemsons, and so forth. We know who they are. The theory being that, wow, if they're offering me a scholarship, I need to take advantage of it because I know I'm going to be playing in a winter, I'm going to be playing in the bowl, I'm going to be receiving all sorts of attention, and maybe we get in the playoff. And then if it doesn't work out, well, I don't really lose anything because I can transfer to, depending on you know how good you are, the next tier, two tiers, however many tiers below, and be immediately eligible so I can get out on the field. So I've got to take this chance to go to the biggest of the big time, see how it works, and then if it doesn't, well, then I can always go someplace else. I agree, and I think that there that is the mentality, and I 100% believe that theory. The flip side of that is, is the execution of that theory still going to be the case when the transfer portal is overflowing? And I think there was a statistic earlier this week that I'm trying to remember the numbers, but it was something along the line that like 50 to 60% of guys that go into the portal never come out and they never end up transferring to school. And you run the risk of losing the scholarship at the school that you're at. So there are risks to going into the portal. There are some guys that are high profile enough that they're going to have plenty of opportunities, plenty of options when they go into the portal. Then there's other guys that they go into the portal never to be heard from again. So it is very much a calculated risk. And it's fascinating, too, because the, the other thing I've been hearing a lot more lately is I've heard from a couple Pac-12 schools. They plan to recruit the transfer portal heavy in January and February of 2021 and maybe won't sign as big a classes tomorrow or in February, largely because they'd rather go get guys that are 20, 21 years old that have been at a different university. So they know they've been on a college weight program. They've been in a strength and condition. They've been in a nutrition program. And they're not having to deal with the 
extra stuff that often comes in recruiting. You know, the people that are, you're controlling the recruiting of a recruit, the people that are, you know, more interested in the photo shoots and the uniforms rather than football. These guys now realize this is my last shot. If I don't make this work, then I'm going to end up in D2, D3, NAI purgatory. So I've got to make this work. So you get a little bit more of a serious recruit from the portal. I anticipate we're going to see more players in the portal because of how many players had to commit to schools sight unseen, coaching staff were met via digital, via FaceTime and Zoom and never in person to really get a feel. I think we're only seeing the, the beginning of just how massive the transfer portal is going to be. And on the same time, I think we're going to start to see more schools focus their attention on recruiting the transfer portals rather than still to be determined fates of 17 and 18 year olds. Brandon Huffman joined us, National Recruiting Coordinator. That seems like it could screw up teams down the line, though, if they have too small a freshman class. Uh, or are they just planning on grabbing guys out of the, the, the portal forever? Well, and I think that the other thing that's throwing a, a wrench into this is the NCAA saying that this year essentially doesn't count from an eligibility standpoint. So now you've got 20 incoming freshmen. You have 20 seniors that you would have expected to go out that now are expecting to come back. And yet the NCAA hasn't named a hard number of how many guys can be on scholarship come the 2021 season. So is it 85, which is the limit now? Is it 95? Is it 105? And now schools are worried about filling out their recruiting class because just because the NCAA said there's an extra year of eligibility, the school's on the hook to pay for that. So the Alabama and the LSU's of the world can afford 105 guys on scholarships, but the San Jose States, the Toledo's, they may not be able to afford any more than the 85 they're already funding. How do they manage their roster when they've got 20 seniors that don't want to leave? Do they kick them out and now that's used against you negatively in recruiting? Do you try to you know manage the situation? So that's where the NCAA kind of leaves a lot of these schools in the dark. They haven't given them a number. So coaches are essentially trying to manage their rosters without any numbers to work with while trying to keep recruiting younger players keeping an eye on the transfer portal as if there's not enough to worry about. Now there's still the worry of, are we going to be able to have any of these guys and enough of these guys on our roster come next fall? How are you ranking the top half of the Pac-12 in terms of recruiting? Right now, I think Oregon has got the top spot in the Pac-12, but that could change. If USC kind of poised to have what they usually do. I mean, last year was a little bit of an anomaly with USC having so much uncertainty under Clay Helton, you know, whether or not they, he was going to be retained for another year, especially with the new uh, athletic director coming in. But this year, they've really had a big offseason. I mean, in terms of recruiting, and now they're 6-0 and or 5-0, and whatever they are, playing for the Pac-12 championship. So they're number two right behind Oregon. And kind of a surprise, Cal's had a really good recruiting class coming off their 2019 season where they went to a bowl, beat Stanford for the first time. They're at number three. Utah is at number four, and they're in position to close strong. Obviously, getting Ethan Calvert was a huge pickup for them. Washington is at number five. And then Arizona State, which started off really strong. They're at number six right now. They could still close well. There's a couple of guys that they're in position to at least be in the final two or three, four, including Corey Foreman, who's the number two player in the country by 24-7 sports. He's down to Arizona, USC, Georgia, LSU, and Clemson. But a lot of buzz that he's staying out west. Will it be ASU? Will it be USC? I think that he ultimately ends up at USC. I've seen this movie enough, uh, but what we're seeing here too is that USC kind of restoring order of where they're used to being in the Pac-12 in the top two or three rather than 10th like they were a year ago. Well, I think most kids should go to ASU. 
Just and that's without any bias, right, DJ? Yeah, right. Good one. <laughs> talking to an ASU grad there, Brandon. Just blow him I, off and keep moving. <laughs> I miss the Dennis Erickson days because when Dennis Erickson was there, you'd call a kid on his official or after his official visit, and it would take about 15 minutes before you got the football being discussed on the official visit for the ASU Dennis Erickson days. I don't want to know what those 15 minutes entailed. <laughs> <laughs> All above the cuff, trust me. Uh, sure, okay, we'll go with that. Uh, so I'm curious how you rank these schools because it's easy that there's only a handful of five-star and there's only a couple of handfuls of four-star guys. And so I get how you can sort out USC and Oregon at the top. But there are so many three-star guys. I have a hard time figuring out how you rank teams three, four, five, six, seven. And the Utes who usually are ranked low and they do have kids coming back from missions and that doesn't factor in. And now I don't know how you're going to factor in transfer portal kids. So translating the recruiting rankings to the standings seems really difficult unless a USC or Oregon just hits it out of the park. That's pretty obvious. Well, a lot of it is just, you know, guys a lot smarter than me, engineers that created a formula. And so with Oregon and USC, you have 15 four-stars committed to Oregon. You have 12 four-stars mm-hmm. committed to USC. So we'll, really where you kind of see where, you know, the difference in the caliber of the three-star you signed or that you got coming from or the caliber of the four-star you got is what kind of separates, you know, three through seven or through eight. You know, we could call Colorado's class. They're the seventh-ranked class in the Pac-12 they don't have one four-star commitment. Arizona State is one spot ahead of them with four four-star commitments. So naturally, Arizona State looks like they have a better class. But, you know, in terms of depth, Colorado has a pretty solid group that's all kind of bunched in together. You, you have classes down at the bottom. Oregon State only has eight commits. So naturally, their numbers are going to be low. And none of them are really high profile. UCLA is right above them at 11th. They don't have any four-stars, you know, in the composite as well. So for a lot of schools, it's more like, what is the middle of your class look like? You're going to have some highly ranked guys up at the top when you're in the top four or five in the conference, but really where you start to separate yourself from the top two classes being, you know, largely four-star, it's how well have you evaluated and how well have you done in signing and landing commitments from kind of that second-tier guy? There's the high second-tier guys, the guys that are 88s, 89s, that high three-star, just on the cusp of a four-star, but maybe just missing it as opposed to the guys that are the 80s that are 81s that are just barely above, you know, really depth guys that you don't anticipate making much of a dent in their college career. Those 88, 89s are three stars. Those 80 and 81s are three stars. But we play with much more value on those guys that are the higher three stars. And that's where you start to see those classes kind of being in that three, four, five, six spot. How much can a team like BYU benefit in the immediacy when they have like a 10-in-1 season that they're having now? I've long subscribed to the theory that you really see the bump in the following year's class. And I think you know, you've know seen that with Utah. Yeah, they closed well a year ago, uh, especially on the two days after the first signing day on the Thursday and Friday. But you're really seeing the bump of their 2019 season happening with 2021 class. I think with BYU, their class, you know, maybe won't be the biggest just from a number standpoint, but they're really going to see that bump in the 2022 class. And largely because, you know, there's still like, hey, Kalani is definitely making it known. This is his program. This is what you can expect from BYU football. 
he's not – I mean, he's going to have his name mentioned for jobs because he's a dang good coach, but he's showing he's not going anywhere. He's staying there. And the more stability you show on a program, you know, rather than coming off a season two years ago where, you know, they were under 500 to now where they were playing for a potential New Year's Six Bowl – I think that that stability really trickles down and resonates with the next class, especially in a pandemic year where more and more guys made early commitments. Tomorrow's going to be one of the most uneventful signing days I've had in a while, largely because there was so much concern and worry with the pandemic. Guys committed a lot earlier without getting to take official visits in the fall. Guys didn't stretch the recruitment out as long as they have. So I think BYU, when they, by the time they had their successful season, so many guys had already made a decision at that point, but maybe that bumped, you know, the, the Logan Fonos of the world, the John Henry Dailies. Maybe that got them, but then that just is a preview into what I really think you'll see them make the move is with those 2022 guys. So obviously uh, there's an investigation going in Utah State into what the president said on a Zoom call with 20 players. Obviously recruits talk to players and all of that, maybe less so with fewer on-campus visits. But how much is all of this going to hurt the Aggie class? How much is the coaching change impacting it? How much are Mountain West schools waiting for the second date to see who's available? Well, I think there's, you know, to answer the first part of the question, I don't know that the investigation is going to move the needle all that much. I think Blake Anderson is going to be tasked with the responsibility of, hey, put together a class that you can in the short amount of time that you can really ramp that effort up by February, but hit the ground running. So that 2022 class doesn't show any real gaps in talent. I think the mountain West is, you know, typically the, the program that or the, the, the conference that likes having the early signing period, they can get those guys to sign in December rather than have to worry about them getting wooed and flipped in January or February. And I think the other advantage for a lot of Mountain West schools right now is that with the Pac-12 playing their season still, with games still going on, energy that would have normally been turned towards recruiting is being focused on the season, which makes it that much more difficult for those Pac-12 schools to flip and woo those Mountain West recruits. So I think the Mountain West kind of is enjoying the fact that there's less opportunity for their players to be flipped. Um, but I think that, you know, like is in the case with a lot of late coaching changes in the last few years with the early signing period, you'll sign who you can in December. The guys that really want to be here, they're going to come. But in the case of Utah State, you really try to ramp things up in the next six weeks and try to come up with some semblance of a class that's going to give you a nice little core and a foundation that you can sign in February. Well, Brandon, as always, we appreciate the time. Thanks for uh, giving us a few minutes here. We bet you guys anytime.